So not too far back, a man was on a trip with his entire family. They went to the, the Holy Land, and the entire family came on this incredible once-in-a-lifetime trip. So they're on this trip. Things are going well. They're seeing all of the sites, visiting everything that Jesus had done, being all the places, and everything's going so well until his mother-in-law gets really sick, and she ends up dying on this trip. So through all the grief and the, the disappointment, uh, they had to meet with a funeral director and decide, what do we do? And so the funeral director kind of said, hey, I know you guys are hurting, but you really got, you got two options here. First option is for $300, we can do a funeral right here in the Holy Land. Or for $5,000, we will prepare her body and we will ship it back to the United States. Well, the guy, uh, talking to his family, he just says, hey, I think we're going to go, we'll spend the $5,000 for you to prepare her body, send it back to the U.S. We just think that that's an important thing. And so um, the guy's like, the funeral director's like, hey, are you sure? Uh, because for 300 bucks, I'm telling you, we'll do an incredible job. We do these all the time. Uh, it'll be extremely meaningful. And at the end of the day, she's going to be buried in the Holy Land. That's an incredible thing for your family to remember. And so the guy says, hey, hold on a man, Hold on a second. Look, 2,000 years ago, you buried a guy here. And three days later, he came back to life. I just can't take that risk with my mother-in-law. <laughs> Welcome to New Hope. Happy Easter. Um, I want you to know that I ran that by my mother-in-law, who was sitting in the, she was sitting in the front row for service. It's mother-in-law approved, and I'm still going to lunch with my family after. Hey, uh, I'm glad you're here. If you're a guest with us, we really are honored that you're here with us. Uh, we're just a regular group of people chasing after Jesus, and uh, we're excited that you would join us this morning. Uh, we're taking a pause from a sermon series that we're in called Reach, and we're just going to talk about the resurrection this morning, the implications of uh, the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection. We're going to be in John chapter 20, so if you have a Bible, you can turn your Bible on, device on, or you grab a, a Bible from the seat in front of you, and we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning, and invite you to go ahead and turn there. Um, but all cards on the table, here's, here's what we're doing. We're looking at the evidence for the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection. And at the end of my message, I'm going to give you a very clear opportunity to respond in baptism. See, we, we believe that uh, baptism is a part of our response to the completed work of Jesus on the cross. And so we're going to give you right on the spot an opportunity today to be baptized into Christ. You think, well, Rob, why, why would I do that? Well, the Bible teaches us Again, the baptism is a part of our, it's not the only part, but it's a part of our response to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. Uh, the Bible tells us that to respond to Jesus, you have faith. You are saved by grace through faith. But biblical faith, when you define biblical faith, one New Testament scholar, John Castelline, says this. He says, biblical faith is, I believe the facts. See, faith is not mere intellectual assent, but it is partly that. I believe the facts. I trust the promises of Jesus, and I obey the commands of Jesus. All coming together in one thing, biblical faith. And so we respond in faith to this incredible message. Peter, who we're going to talk about uh, today in our text, Peter actually preached the first Christian sermon. At the end of that sermon, after looking at the evidence for and the implications of the resurrection, they said, what do we do to respond to this? What's our response to this incredible truth? And in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, you repent. And he's implying that the belief in, in the facts... And the trust in the promises is there. You repent. Repent means I just rethink what I've thought about life. I turn my life in a different direction. And then he says, be baptized, each and every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this, today, as we look at the evidence for and the implications of the resurrection, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. If you find yourself believing the facts, the truth of this, and trusting the promises, the implications, what God will do through this, and you are ready to obey him in this. As a part of your faith, we want to give you that opportunity. Uh, so you might say, hey, well, I was baptized as an infant. I think that's awesome. I, I really do think it's awesome. Your parents cared enough about you to do that, but whose faith was that? Yours or theirs? See, as an infant, you weren't able to believe the facts and trust the promises and obey the commands. You weren't capable of doing that. And so while it's a very kind, incredible gesture, you need to respond on your own. You might say, well, I'm not prepared to go home wet today. That's cool. We got you covered. We've got shirts, boxer shorts, shorts. Got a hairdryer back here. I'm not kidding. We got everything laid out for you. You don't have to go home wet. Just go home changed. Go home completely transformed. So if you feel yourself wanting to respond today, we've got you covered in the back. Everything you need to go home dry and changed forever. You say, well, my family's not here, and I really want them to see it. This is a big deal. So here's how I'd encourage you this. We got cameras. In fact, the music team, they'll hear me saying this. I want them to bring their phones out here when they come back out, and they will take pictures right here for you the entire time. We've got an expensive camera sitting right in the back of the room that we will point toward there, and we will record it for you. In fact, if you want to invite your family to come back, we'll pay for the party, and we'll show the recording of your baptism on the screen. That's how much we believe in this. But I want to be really clear. You have an opportunity to respond today, and I want you to do me a favor. If you've never made that decision, two things. If you are a Christian, if you've made that decision already, you've been baptized, I encourage you to be affirmed this morning as we look at the evidence and we look at the implications of the resurrection. If you've never been immersed in baptizing the Christ, I want to ask you to do me a favor. Eliminate distractions. Just listen. Is this true? Don't think about the person seated next to you. Don't think about what you got to do after church. Just think about this. If this is true, what does this truth mean for me? So we're going to examine the truth out of John chapter 20. And while we do that, I want to ask you, focus. Is this your day? Is this the day that you go home different forever? John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So Jesus had already uh, been crucified. His body had been taken, his dead body taken from the cross, put in the tomb, and she comes and finds that the tomb is rolled away. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, you know, the one whom Jesus loved. I love that John calls himself that. I just, just think that's a cool little add-on. He liked everybody else, but boy, he loved me. I'm kidding, but I'm the one that he loved. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And then one of my favorite verses, verse 4, how cool is this? Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. First century trash talk is awesome. It's like, hey, small fact that people will read forever. I'm faster than you, Peter. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. And then Peter came, following him, losing the race, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying in the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, still, love it. Uh, I feel like it's me and my brother talking. And also went in, and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he was to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The Gospel of Luke tells us they went back to their homes to contemplate all that had taken place. What does this mean? What is this evidence? What are the implications of this evidence, of this being true in our lives? So you've got Peter. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb when everybody else leaves. And she wept... And as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The second time she's asked this question. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've taken his body, if you've carried him away, just tell me where he is, where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned after hearing him say her name. She knew. And she turns to him, and in Aramaic says, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to, the, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Okay, so quite a bit going on here. Uh, Two characters um, in addition to Jesus and John. The two main characters here are Peter and Mary. Peter goes into this tomb. You've got to understand a little bit of the story. Peter had denied Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't want to know him. Nothing. Let him, let him go. And he, and he felt like he had betrayed Jesus. He felt a heavy burden on himself. And so he went back to fishing. Now he hears about the resurrection. He comes back and he's like, I don't know what's going on, but I, I got to figure out. He goes into the tomb, a defeated, disgruntled, discouraged friend. And I'm convinced many of us feel that way too. Like Peter, we've got our doubts. Like Peter, we feel like maybe the Lord doesn't love us the way he said he did, or we don't love him the way that we were supposed to love him. Maybe we're not ready for this. Maybe we don't understand. We wa- he walked into that tomb feeling that way, and yet he walks out of the tomb, one of the strongest Christian leaders in the history of the world. In fact, he is the first leader of this new Christian movement. From this moment on, all of the other disciples will look to Peter as their leader. So he goes into the tomb, but comes out of the tomb changed. You have Mary who goes into the tomb and she's frustrated, heartbroken. Twice the text tells us that she's weeping. That's an uncontrollable weeping. I can't help but express my brokenheartedness. She can't catch a break. It's one bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing. Can life throw me another curveball, please? Anybody ever been there? She walks into the tomb feeling down and out, discouraged, Sad, heartbroken, and when she comes out of that tomb, she becomes a spokesperson for the glory of God, an ambassador for Jesus, the first one to exclaim, I have seen the risen Lord. So my question is, what is it that changed them? What is it about evidence that changed their lives forever? What is it about this truth that just rocked them to their core and said, I can't go on the same. Something has to change. I like the way Louis Giglio says it. He says this. He said, the stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. Do you realize in verse 19, Jesus walks through a wall. I don't think the stone was in his way. He says, the stone was rolled away so that you could go in and see he's not there anymore. And in seeing that he's no longer there, you can see what does that mean for your life. 
And so this morning, I want to look at some evidence to support the resurrection. I want to walk through some arguments, some, some things that people have against it. I encourage you, if you're taking notes, take some notes. And then we're going to look at how, does this, how do we trust this to be truth? And if we trust it to be truth, what does that truth mean for us in our lives? So I want to begin by saying this. It's very, it's, it, it's seldom that somebody denies that there was an empty tomb. Christian, not Christian, scholar, everywhere. Historian. They don't necessarily argue the fact that the tomb was empty. Now, they're not Christians, all of them, and they don't believe in the resurrection. But rarely does somebody say that there was not an empty tomb. In fact, most people believe that there was a historical Jesus. History points the fact that there was. And this historical person, Jesus, had a very big following. And in an effort to stop that big following, the Romans put him to death. And they put him in a tomb. And three days later, the tomb was empty. So the question is not, was there an empty tomb? The question is, how did the tomb get empty? How did the tomb get empty? And to answer that, uh, scholars and, and, and theologians have kind of narrowed it down to say there's really three popular approaches, three options you have for explaining away the empty tomb. We're going to look at each of these. The first one is this. Option number one, Jesus' body was stolen. So maybe, maybe Jesus was put into the tomb and somebody went in and they stole his body and they hid his body and then they started the rumor that he had resurrected. Okay, so in order to, for this to be true, you have to have a suspect, right? If this is true, you have a suspect. And a suspect has to have the means and the motive, correct, in order to per- do the crime. What are the means? Does he have the ability to do it? What's his motive? Why would he go and do it? And so they say there's really three options for who might have been a suspect in stealing the body of Jesus. Suspect number one, the Roman government. Okay, the Romans. Maybe they went in and they stole the body. They removed the body from the tomb. But here's the problem with that. Matthew chapter 27 tells us that Pilate had ordered a guard of soldiers. Now, a guard of soldiers would have consisted of 16 soldiers. And Pilate told them to guard the tomb. So four of them around the clock would stand in front of the stone. Twelve others would sit in a semicircle around them so they could rest and they could go on a cycle here. But also, no one's getting past the twelve and then past the four and then passed the seal that they had sealed the tomb with. And so it doesn't make sense that the Romans would have done it. They're the ones that wanted to kill him in the first place. Maybe they did it as a joke. Well, again, Pilate said, if these soldiers were trying to joke around and mess with people, Pilate said, seal the tomb with the Roman seal. Here's what that means. If that seal's broken, the person that broke it is dead, period. No questions asked. If you break the seal, you die. So I don't know any soldiers who had watched Jesus get beat and knew what he had gone through when they said, you're going to die. It's not a pleasant death. That would say, hey, I know something funny. Let's break the seal. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. They're not going to break the seal and take the risk of their own life. It doesn't make sense. That and on top of that, they wanted to steal the seal to remain sealed so that his body could decompose and they could prove, in fact, that Jesus had died. So Option one, the Roman government doesn't seem to pan out as a suspect who might have stolen the body of Jesus. Option number two, the religious leaders, the Jews. So maybe the Jews, they went in and they stole the body, but the question I have is maybe they had the means, but what's the motive? I mean, this was their idea in the first place. Why would the Jews, the religious leaders in the community, go in and steal the body of Jesus? The only reason that I read in all of my research that somebody could come up with is maybe they wanted to preemptively one-up the disciples. Knowing that the disciples wanted to claim, because they knew that Jesus claimed on the third day he'd rise again, maybe they're going to steal the body, and then when the resurrection rumors started, they would produce the body and say, ha, I told you, here he is, he's dead. 
See, the problem with that is they never did it. They never produced the body when the rumor started because it wasn't a rumor. They had no way of producing the body because they didn't steal the body. They didn't go in and steal the body because it was their idea in the first place. Matthew 27 again says that they came up with the idea to have the tomb guarded. So in an effort to have it guarded, why go in and steal it? So it doesn't seem like the Jews would have been the thieves for em- to the empty tomb. Suspect number three, the followers of Jesus, maybe the disciples, maybe they did it. Maybe somehow they snuck by the guards, rolled the stone away, broke the seal, rolled the stone away, got in, got Jesus' body, got it out, hid the body, started the rumor. A couple problems with this. Now, the disciples claim that when they went into the tomb, what they noticed was a neatly folded linens, neatly folded linens. How many robberies do you know of when somebody goes in to steal something, right? I don't, I've never read of somebody saying, I'm going to rob that house. They go into the house, they go after what they want, they get what they want, and on their way out, they say, hold up, guys. Hold up, before we leave, let's do their laundry. And then let's fold it really nice so they never suspect we were here. See, that doesn't make any sense. Most robberies happen in a hurry, but on top of that, a religious power play usually gains something from a claim like this. So if they were to steal the body and start a rumor about the resurrection, like many critics say, they were just, gaining, they were just wanting power. They were just wanting something. You have to gain something from this. And usually it comes in the power in the form of power or money or sex or pleasure of some sort is why you would do something this deceitful. Here's the problem. What did the resurrection claim get the disciples? What did it get them? Did it get them power? Because if you read the account of the disciples, they were chased, they were beaten, they were rejected, they were blacklisted, unable to get work, they were persecuted, they were all but one, were martyred for their faith, murdered because they followed Jesus. In fact, not only were they killed, but they had to watch their family members go through persecution and often death. Peter, history tells us that Peter the apostle watched his wife get crucified. And then he endured the same punishment himself and died, uh, died a criminal's death, but did not want to be persecuted upright. So he said, not like my Lord. And they persecuted him upside, they crucified him upside down. Power, I don't know. I don't think that, that if they were after power, that's not what they got from this. Not only that, you would think that along the way, when persecuted and the pressure's put on you, somebody somewhere would crack. I mean, you got to remember, Jesus appeared to 500 people and none of them broke. None of them broke. Now, the way I think of it is this, yeah, but you can gain strength in numbers and you believe it and we've seen all that happen before. But here's the thing, the disciples didn't die together. The followers of Jesus died separated by time and space, time and geography. They died at different moments and in different places. They weren't able to gain strength in numbers. They weren't able to gain their strength together, all of them. They gained their strength from one thing, the truth. The truth. The truth that Jesus resurrected from the dead, and because he resurrected from the dead, I will follow him even if it means I die. See, people don't follow somebody. They don't follow a lie unto death. But yet all the disciples did. So power? I don't think they're after power. What about money? Well, again, if you read the account of the disciples, you see it couldn't have been money. Their motive could not have been money because they didn't have any. They were poor oftentimes relying on the generosity of other people. And when they did have money, they taught one another to give it all away. You don't need money. They wanted to protect themselves from letting money become their God. In fact, that's what they taught and instructed people. What about pleasure or sex? Did they get 
Did their testimony about the resurrection get them pleasure? No. They taught that sex was to be between a man and a woman in marriage, and that's it. They taught that. They lived that. So they didn't get power, and they didn't get money, and they didn't get pleasure. What did they get? They got the truth and assurance that I can endure persecution in this life. I can endure tragedy and difficulty and frustration in this life because of the resurrection. I know the kingdom that awaits me. See, it wasn't relying on anything else except this is true and this happened. So it couldn't have been the Roman government and it didn't look like it was the Jews and it didn't look like the followers of Jesus. That kind of tells me that maybe option number one somebody stole Jesus' body, was not what took place with the empty tomb. The tomb was not empty because someone stole the body. So what other options are there? Option number two, Jesus never really died. Many claim that Jesus didn't die, that he went through excruciating pain and passed out, lost consciousness, maybe even slipped into a slight coma. They took his body, they put it in the tomb. After sealing the tomb, he regained consciousness and somehow got out of the tomb. All right, so that's what they believe. So he got out of the tomb. Maybe he went into hiding and he started a family and there was some secret code that Tom Hanks cracked just a few years ago, right? It's ridiculous. There's a number of problems with this, apart from its complete stupidity. Number one, Romans were experts at crucifixion. Experts. They didn't make mistakes with it. Why? Because Roman law said, if you take a body off of a cross and they're not dead, you're going to die. Make sure they're dead. This is why they went through all the effort to say, should we break his legs? How do we make sure that he's dead? Because I'm not taking him off and risking me dying until I know he's dead. That was Roman law. And so they went, and if you know the story, they went and they shoved a spear into his side, and the text tells us that what came out? Blood and... Now, maybe they didn't know this then, but medically we know now that that is a sign of death. When your body dies, the blood begins to clot. When the blood clots, a watery serum is formed around the heart. So the only way for blood and water to have poured out when Jesus' side was pierced would be if he was already dead. Not only that, the other evidence for this is that that usually when someone endured the beating that Jesus endured, that was punishment enough. Jesus endured such a horrific beating, historians tell us that the beating he endured killed most men that had to go through it. It was not uncommon to see body parts flying during this beating, this flogging. And then they dragged Jesus and they put him up on the cross. This is why Jesus died before the other two thieves. The two thieves on the cross that were crucified near him, he died first because they didn't endure the beating that he endured. Yet again, evidence that Jesus was in fact dead when he was taken off of the cross. If Jesus did survive, how in the world would he have had the strength to move the stone and sneak by the guards? and then go and convince his disciples that he had resurrected. See, it doesn't seem like option two holds very much weight, that Jesus didn't really die. Evidence points to the fact that, no, he really did die. Option number three is what we're left with. Option number three, Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. Jesus really did conquer death and come back. This is the most compelling explanation for the events that took place. That Jesus was buried in this tomb, he resurrected from the dead, he appeared to Mary, then to the disciples, then to 500 others, and commissioned them to go make disciples and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. This is the most compelling evidence to point to what took place with that empty tomb. And you say, well, Rob, if that's the most compelling evidence, why don't more people believe it? If it's so compelling, why are so many people not accepting this truth? There's a couple reasons, but I like one that uh, German philosopher Wolfhart 
Pannenberg says. He says this. He says, The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. One, it's a very unusual event. Agreed? It's very unusual. Resurrection, not normal. And second, if you believe it happened, then you have to change the way you live. So it's an unusual event. So science, a lot of people bank their, their idea on science. Science tells us that the supernatural is impossible, but really, when you examine the evidence, science tells us the exact opposite, that the supernatural is not only possible, but it happens. See, science doesn't defeat this concept, but they bank it on science. So it's an unusual thing. It's hard to accept. We don't see it all the time, and we shouldn't see it all the time. We don't see it all the time. But there's no reason, because it's unusual, for you not to examine the evidence and make a decision. And that leads me to the second part, that if it is true, you have to change the way you live. That if this is a truth, it actually, this was my big hang-up with Christianity for years. I had things in my life I didn't want to give up, that I came to understand that if I believed the truth, I wouldn't give them up. I didn't like what the Bible said about this. I didn't like how Christians behave this way. I didn't like this idea or that thought. That was a big part of my hang-up with becoming a Christian. But then I had to come face-to-face with the realization of this. Is it or isn't it true? Despite your preferences, despite what you want, despite what you desire, does the evidence point to the fact that it is true? See, that's the, that's the hang-up. The hang-up is not, do you, do you believe it? It's do you want to believe it? And you allow your desires to stop you from believing it's truth. Because I don't like the way Christians behave this way or that way. That's not what I was asking. I was asking, is it true? Let me ask this question this way. Have you considered the evidence for the resurrection and what it means for your life? Have you considered it? Not because of what your friends think, not because of where your workplace is, not because of what you like, what you prefer. Have you examined the evidence on its terms, not yours? Because I'm convinced if you will examine the evidence that the resurrection is true, then your preferences become secondary to the, 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 the primary part of this, which is the truth that Jesus resurrected. And if that becomes a truth in your life, it changes everything. Look, if we were to go to coffee, just sit together and have a conversation, I would tell you, man, the greatest news in the history of the world is that Jesus resurrected from the dead. There's nothing in life better than this. I can't, I can't even wrap my brain around all the good that comes from accepting this truth. Is it easy? No. No, it's not easy. Is it worth it? Absolutely. So if you were said, Rob, why? I, I get it. I really do think it might be true, but why should I make this decision? Even though it's true, I'd tell you there's a million reasons. Let me focus on three of them. The first implication of the resurrection being true in your life is this, that Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus is who Jesus says he was. Jesus will fulfill all of his promises. Because the resurrection is true, everything about Jesus can be trusted. That means when Jesus looks at you and says, you are no longer defined by your past, you can believe him. When Jesus looks at you and says, I have a plan and a purpose for your life, you can believe it. When Jesus looks at you and says, I want to use you to influence many lives for my kingdom, you can believe him. Why? Because he resurrected from the dead. Now, here's the thing, though. Just because Jesus can be trusted in big things like that doesn't mean he can't be trusted in the small things. It's not just mountaintop experiences. I'm telling you, in the everyday, ordinary experiences of your life, Jesus can be trusted. Everything. We always think mountaintops. What about in the plains or the valleys, the difficulty, the the monotony of life? Can Jesus be trusted in those moments? Yes, the big things and the small. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This last Monday, I, I, uh, I teach a Christian worldview class at another church in the city. And so I'm on my way to this, uh, to teach this class this last Monday morning, so not even a week ago. 
and I'm turning from one road onto another. And as you turn onto this road, you got, uh, I don't know, a mile down the road is where this place is, but the road goes from two lanes to one. And I'm running a little bit late, all right? And so I'm driving, and there's a car at my uh, 7, 8 o'clock, and he's not letting me in. So in a moment of weakness, I got in. <laughs> I sped up, and I cut in, all right? And immediately, he gets on my bumper. Immediately, he's on my bumper, and he's, he's riding my bumper. And I look in the rearview mirror, and, and in another moment of weakness, I thought, it's a really old guy. I could take him if it comes to it. <laughs> Probably not the best thought, just being honest with you here. I thought, I'm not even scared physically. I don't know what else he's going to do, but we'll see. So he keeps following me. No kidding. He follows me around the roundabouts. He follows, turns into this parking lot. He follows me, turns all the way to the side of the parking lot. I go to park to loop around one more time to make sure he was following me. And then you park and you're like, no, he's following me. I'm like, here we go. I'm going to get arrested for hurting an old guy. I'm kidding. I didn't think, but <laughs> grab my bag and I get out of the car and he pulls up and he looks at me and he waves, and he drives away. I thought, way easier than I thought. <laughs> Weird, but easy. And I, I go in, and I teach the class, and then I come out, and, and this is waiting for me. Um, on my windshield, he had written a note, and he left it on my windshield while I was in class teaching. And it says, hey, my name is Denny. Uh, I'm the guy who sped up and tried to keep you from passing me um, on, the, on the right side. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I've been coming to church for just a couple of months. If you serve at this church, which I don't serve at that church, but I thought I did. Thank you for serving. I've got a lot to learn. Give me a call. And so I did. I called him and I said, you're absolutely right. You shouldn't have cut me. I'm kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> I called him and I said, hey, he said, I was convicted the moment you turned into church. I just was reminded of what life was all about. And I said, I'll tell you what, your note did the same thing for me. I said, well, you could have let me in. I could have slowed down. I think we're both at fault here. And then he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, isn't it good that two guys can let Jesus be bigger than their road rage? And I thought, that's the resurrection. That's the resurrection. And the big things and the small things, he can be trusted with everything. Implication number two. The resurrection is our starting point that leads us to the finish line. You see, you're not perfect. And newsflash, after you become a Christian and you're baptized, you're still not perfect. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. And that's what Satan wants you to, to, to think of to prevent you from making this decision, to keep you in your seat this morning when we have that opportunity. It's for you to think, but what if I keep messing up? After third service, there's a young man named Alex Jones who's going to be getting baptized. And his parents have prayed for him for years. So have I, my wife. We've prayed for him for a long time. Alex's biggest hang-up was that I don't want to sin after I get baptized. I want to be done with sinning. I don't think I can stop sinning after. And so we said, hey, Alex, welcome. <laughs> welcome. You're going to still make mistakes. You're still going to mess up. Here's the difference, though. And this is what we say to him, and this is what I would say to you if this is your hang-up. The difference is this, when I sin and when I fall, the grace and blood of Jesus covers me. But when I sin and when I fall, apart from that, I have to give an account for myself. And at the end of the day, I'd much rather him defend me than have to defend myself. See, you're going to mess up. But the truth of the resurrection tells us that's our starting point that leads us to our finish line. The third implication is this. The resurrection gives our everyday lives a real purpose. 
a real purpose. So not just a purpose in that moment, but every day after that, you now have a purpose. Every day you wake up, there's somebody to love, somebody to care for, somebody to talk about. The resurrection took Peter as he walked into that tomb from being selfish and, and focusing on himself. He walks out of the tomb and all he can do is think about other people. I like to say it this way, the resurrection gave Peter resurrection eyes. You go to Acts chapter three, Peter's walking in the temple. He can't help but notice people and he notices somebody sitting and he shares the gospel with them. He can't help but love and serve other people. He just wants to go and be all about other people. It took him from being selfish to being selfless. See, the resurrection does that. It gives you a purpose in life to serve and love other people. Did the same for Mary. She walks in and she's heartbroken and upset and now she walks out and she's on fire and she's the first to say, I've seen the risen Lord. That's what the resurrection does. Let me illustrate for you this way. Here's a picture. This is uh, Chase and Bob. Chase and Bob are sitting right here. Chase has been coming to New Hope six or eight months. Uh, his wife, Alyssa, and, and uh, they, they came from a campus ministry and they, they jumped in. They really liked the vision of our place, disciples making disciples, and, and they really took it seriously and they start living this out. One day, Chase is walking to his apartment and uh, because of the resurrection, Chase had resurrection eyes and he saw Bob. Bob was sitting there and Chase could easily gone on his way and kept with, I'm sure he was short on time, wanted to get some things done, but he stopped and he struck up a conversation with Bob. And he learned a lot about Bob, that Bob had uh, some difficulty in his life for a long time. In fact, Bob had been in an accident on a four-wheeler that he should have died in. He should have died in that accident. But the Lord spared his life there and Bob and Chase struck up a friendship. And over the last couple months, Bob came to our Christmas Eve service. And Bob has been coming to our church ever since and Chase has been praying for him and working with him. And Bob's birthday was Good Friday. And at the conclusion of our service, Chase is going to baptize Bob into Christ. Because Chase has resurrection eyes. Because he saw somebody and thought, he's more important than me. And Bob said, I think God spared my life on that four-wheeler so he could save my life today. See, the same truth is for you. If you've never made this decision, we've got you covered. Everything you need to make that choice today, it's here. We've got the shirts, the boxer shorts, they're clean, new, open the new package, all not used, I promise. We got everything you could possibly need. We got a hairdryer. It's not leaving wet, it's leaving changed. And I'm gonna have you stand with me in just a moment. I'm gonna pray. And if you're a Christian, we're gonna sing some songs. We're gonna respond in worship. If you're already a Christian, man, I would just encourage you, be affirmed, sing the truth of these songs and walk out of here grateful and refreshed this Resurrection Sunday that Jesus saved you. But if you're not, I want you to wrestle with it. Wrestle with the words to the songs. Watch people get baptized. And if you're ready, I'm going to stand off to the side. You don't even need to come up front. I'm going to go over there to the side. And if you're ready to make a decision today to be baptized into Christ, I'll meet you right there. David will be right up front. And if you want to come up front, he'd love to sit and talk to you. There's nothing in this world that brings us greater joy than watching people give their lives to Jesus. And that's what we want to do this morning. Let's stand together and pray.